0: All right, well, we're going to be continuing our series in Exodus today and be in Exodus chapter three. But I want to open with like a prologue um, to the sermon, and it's found in Genesis fifteen, some four hundred years before the Exodus story, four hundred plus years, and it's a covenant between God and Abraham. He's not called Abraham yet, um, but what God says to Abraham, like, is kind of a forecast of where the story in Exodus is going. So Genesis fifteen twelve says, "And the son." was setting. As the sun was setting, Abram, Abram, fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, "Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace." and be buried at a good old age, and in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Tells the story of what's about to happen in Exodus, but this is some 400 years before Exodus. This is By the time we get to Moses, this is a really old story. The echoes of what God tells to Abram would have been passed down to Moses. Um, This week, um, in the church world, uh, a a pastor uh, passed away, died. His name was Timothy Keller. And he was a pastor of a a church in New York City. Um, Great pastor, one of my favorite preachers, one of my favorite authors, even though he's a Presbyterian. Uh, But he he was uh, just an incredible um, uh, voice in in the world, very um, just well thought out. And for me, like uh, so much of my pastoring, uh, two voices have just shaped my rhythms as a pastor, Eugene Peterson and Tim Keller, and both of them are now gone. Um, But it's interesting, like with both of them, they left such a legacy in their writings that their words live on beyond them. And even today, as an ode to him as he passed away, I'm going to be uh, borrowing some of his outline for this passage in Exodus 3. Uh, But those words that that Tim wrote will echo on. Uh, How much more profound are the words that are given to Abram? By the time we get to Exodus, these are uh, words that God has with Abraham, uh, and and it's forecasting where all this is going. And we know that it's divinely inspired. As he hears these words, um, as he gathers them, um, this is what sets the table. The people of God are going to be in Egypt. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. And then God's going to do something about it. Exodus 3 is one of my favorite passages in the scripture because it's a pivotal moment in the history of God's people. It's a pivotal moment in Moses' life. But this is the story where God does something. And in this story, we, we hear the name of God. We, we find out about the characteristics of God, the plan of God as he decides to save his people And so I want to read Exodus 3 today, probably like the first 15 verses, and it's a long passage, and when I do this, it's like a lot of scripture, but it's good to read and listen to scripture. So I'm going to invite you into that today. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 3, and as we do that, take a moment and pause and breathe and hear this word of the Lord. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. When the the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just like we just sang about. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them, to rescue them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the other Ites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But he said, But I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And finally, then Moses said to God, if I come back to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. All right, the story, the story of the burning bush, some of you are familiar with that going all the way back to Sunday school. It's something that can be easily understood and yet there's a depth here. There's a, there's a profound mystery about how God works, and his characteristics are, are found in this passage. So there's a couple of things. One, as we, we look at this passage, there's some theological truths I just want to draw out of it, about who God is, his characteristics, and what he's up to, and then what I would call some pastoral concerns for the community, or some pastoral thoughts. Like, if, what does this word mean for us in this place? So it Uh, A a quick way to say it is when we look at the characteristics of God, it it tells us that he's a God of patience. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of absolute sufficiency. And he's a God of presence. He's near. He's a God who is patient. So this passage opens up, that says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He's keeping his flock. He's tending sheep. He's watching over sheep. He's continually doing this. And if you know the story of Moses up to this point, his life starts off great. Well, not great. His life starts off pretty wild. Um, he, he's born and he's put into the Nile as a baby. But then Pharaoh's daughter finds him, adopts him, and strikes a deal with Moses' his real mom, the Hebrew lady. And uh, he grows up in the house of Pharaoh, an incredibly um, influential house, one of the most powerful people on earth, in that house Moses is raised. And as he's raised, he probably gets the best education. As Moses is raised, uh, he probably, um, you know, re- reads books like How to uh, Win Friends and Influence People, you know, those kind of things. Like in Forbes 30 Under 30, like this up-and-coming leader in Egypt. Uh, he's wealthy, and he also has this realization that he's, he's a Hebrew, he's an Israelite. He's different than the Egyptians. As he's getting older, near the age of 40, it tells us that he sees one of his fellow Hebrews getting beaten by one of the Egyptians, and he decides to try to do something about it. This is probably something that has been building up in Moses for a while, and he snaps. And it tells us, it tells us the text tells us that he murders this Egyptian to, to try to help his Hebrews out, uh, his Hebrew brethren. And then they, they see that the next day, they, they like let him know that they have witnessed this murder. And Moses realizes that he's in trouble. So he flees. He runs away from Egypt because his life is on the line. And as he runs from Egypt, he goes across the wilderness to this kind of forgotten part of the, uh, the world, a place called Midian. And there he meets a man and his daughters, gets married. And this this man who grew up in Pharaoh's household spends the next 40 years in this quiet, forgotten area tending sheep, watching over his father-in-law's sheep, a completely different lifestyle than the first part of his life, a very humble lifestyle, being a shepherd. Uh, uh, It's something that um, isn't super exciting. In fact, I would say, it it would probably feel like Moses that his life has come to a dead end, like there's not a lot of like upward, uh, you know, movement in the shepherding world, and not just that is it's like it's like his father-in-law's you know, uh, business. He's like just working for his father-in-law, eking out a living, you know, take very quiet, quiet life, different than the first part of his life, and yet this is when God comes to him, and says. It's time now for you to walk into your calling. It's time now for you to be who I've called you to be. Early in Moses' life, he wanted to do something about the Israelites in slavery. He goes about it the wrong way. Forty years later, he's probably 80 years old, he's now given this opportunity again. It reminds me of, like, the, uh, in the movie um, uh, The Lion King. You know, like the Lion King, you have Simba. Uh, You know, Simba's dad dies. Uncle Scar blames the death on Simba, and he tells him to run away. And you remember, Simba runs away, and he meets Timon and Pumbaa, and he grows up. And then finally they come back to, to Simba and say, it's time to step into your calling. And Simba comes back, and he's ready to rumble. He's in the prime of his life, and he's ready to take on Scar. Moses is 80 when God comes back. Moses has lost all of his... Uh, his financial uh, influence, his relational influence, he's lost his physical prime, he's 80 years old, and now he is ready for God to use him. God says, come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And you would think, like, this isn't probably the ideal, like, why didn't God do this 40 years before when Moses was in Pharaoh's household, had all the influence, was in the prime of his life, was ready to rumble, like, why doesn't God do it then? Why does he do it now? And you start to realize that there's this different type of timing that God has for his people when, when he calls a person. It's a different type of timing. You could call it, um, maybe it's a strategic patience that God has with people. I've heard it, I've heard it called a brilliant delay that God has in people's life. But for whatever it is, God is patient, and he waits until he thinks Moses is ready to lead his people, and it looks completely different than the kind of leader that we would expect to lead these people out of slavery of this empire. Here's a couple of principles of God's patience, strategic patience, when it comes to how he's patient with us. One is this, Um, until you feel, feel useless, you're not useful to God. Let me explain that. Until you feel useless, you're not useful to God. You see, you're you're never of use of, of God until you come to the end of yourself. This is the story of the gospel. For us to come into relationship with God, we have to come to the end of ourselves. We come to this moment where we realize, I'm not God, and I can't do all of this. In fact, I need a savior. The story of, of surrendering your, your heart to, to God is you realize, you, you become very aware of your own brokenness and limitations, and you, you come to this moment of surrender where you say, God, will you, I'm desperate for you to give me life. I'm desperate for you for, for salvation. I've come to the end of myself. And the same thing happens when, when God uses us. Like, it starts there. But then, if God wants to use us, we, we have to empty ourselves of, of, of us. And for Moses, he has this huge calling. But God doesn't use Moses until Moses is very small so that God can be very big in his life. I found this to be true in my own life. Um, you know, I felt like calling to ministry at a very young age in my 20s. I was ready to go. I was like, oh, man, we are going to end, we're going to end global poverty in my generation we're going to renew culture in my generation. We're going to see revival. We're going to do all this stuff. It's going to be amazing. And I feel like God was like, let's just start with like, what's going on in your own soul, Jared. Like, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in here. And, and, and going through like, a, a process of, of pruning, of, of, of breaking down, of, of me realizing my need, of like, my own limitations, my, my own brokenness, um, it, it, was, it was a painful process. It's still a process that I, that I go through. Because I get in the way, it becomes about me. And yet, when I finally get to a moment of desperation, then God's strength can come through in my life. And I think you see this with Moses, with how he starts out to where he's at when God finally calls him with this burning bush. The second is that God's timing is virtually never our timing. So if we come to this this moment of desperation, we also have this understanding that God's timing is just a lot different than what we want. Like, you would think that God's timing would be Moses when he's 40, and yet now it's Moses when he's 80. You would think it was Moses when he has all the influence. It's Moses when he has nothing, that God comes to him. And God has this way of, of working out his timing much differently like, than the plan that we would put in place. Um, 2 Peter 8-9 talks about uh, the, kind of how God's timing works. It says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I love that line. The the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. I mean, how true do I find that in my life? And it's like, man, why doesn't God do this thing for me or like this thing I've been praying for, this thing that I've been hoping for? And I don't understand like what his plan is when I'm in the midst of it. But what these scriptures tell us is that God is working out his own timeline and we're invited to trust that. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean he's not doing anything. Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, This is a, a great life verse, right? Like, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, then you will call on me and come and pray and I will listen to you. I know a lot of people that will use this as a life verse and that's great, but no one ever uses the verse right before it as a life verse where it talks about how this is 70 years before these plans come about. So it's like, in 70 years, my promises will come about. And you're like, that, that's a long time. Like, so 70 years... So like before I know the plans I I have for you, like I oh that's great, but but you're like taking the long view, if that's your life verse. I'm just gonna say that. That God's timing is on our our timing, his slowness is different than what we understand. And for Moses, he's eighty. He's eighty years old when God comes to him and says, Now it's time for you to lead my people out of Egypt. I don't know if we have any people in this room that are 80 years old. I'm 40. I'm at the age where Moses killed the Egyptian, you know, but (laughs) 80, and he has this new calling, this calling that is incredibly huge to lead his people out of Egypt. God's patience. God is a God of patience and a God of timing, A a God of brilliant delays, a God of strategic patience, and that character is revealed from a pastoral perspective, this is something we, I, I reflect on, but, but where do I need to remember that aspect of God's character with how I'm living life right now, that his timing's not my, my timing, that he's at work even though I can't see it? How do I, what does that mean for me right now? Um, second thing is that not only is uh, a God a God of patience, he's a God of holiness, a God of holiness. Um, and uh, when, when he appears in this uh, burning bush, it says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, behold, the bush was burning. goes on. He, he approaches after God calls him, and, and then God says this, do not come near, take off your sandals, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Tyler was like, are you going to take off your shoes as like an example? of, And I'm like, nope, not going to do that. But have you ever got to a, a, a place feels so sacred, like the presence of God is so holy that you you take off your shoes. Like, this feels different. This feels set apart. There's this holiness that comes with the presence of God. You can call it a fiery holiness, or this fiery reality that just feels different. And you have to ask, like, why does God appear to Moses as fire? Like, what's going on here? Why fire? But you know what fire does. Fire it smites the senses, right? Like you, you see its brightness. It could be overwhelming at night. You could feel the heat, and it's ferocious. You can hear the roar of a fire. You can smell the smoke. Everything about fire is something that you experience. And when you understand and respect the power of fire, you don't understand it necessarily from a, a scientific standpoint or a systematic standpoint. It's because you have experienced the ferociousness of fire, that you come to an understanding of what fire is. It's not just something that you believe in, it's something that you experience. And for Moses, he experiences this presence of God, this holiness of God, in a way where he moves from just understanding that God is real to understanding that God is personal. You might say this is Moses' conversion experience where something different happens. Where he just doesn't believe in God, but now he has experienced God and it has transformed his identity and his future. He has encountered the living God in this fire. Terry Clay, many of you know him. Uh, He was here at first service. Um, He helped us build this wood backdrop like a year and a half ago or so. And like Tyler and Tim and uh, a bunch of the guys that are good at woodworking, as we were building this backdrop, Terry made us. Uh, paint, like, a, a fire uh, retardant or repellent on it. And we're like, do we really need to do this? Like, we're not going to catch it on fire. And, and Terry's like, yes, we're doing this. So we, we paint all the fire repellent on it. And then, uh, then he goes, okay, we're going to do a second coat of this. So this thing will never catch on fire. And we're like, that feels a little, like, extreme, like, over the top. Like, do we really need to paint another coat of, like, fire repellent paint on this? And we're kind of like, yeah, Terry's, you know, he's he's being overly cautious, and so I'm I'm hanging out with Terry like a week ago, and we're having uh, milk and cookies and and talking about life, and he's telling me these stories of work. He used to work like in the oil industry and like energy, and he told me the story of like one of the sites that he was working on. A fire broke out, and it just devastated everything, and like a bunch of people lost their lives, people that he knew, and. so it was one of those just terrible things that he'd ever seen. And as he's telling me this story, I'm thinking back to like a year and a half ago when we, we built this wall, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Terry knows the danger of fire because he has experienced it with people that he knows. He's seen how ferocious a fire can be and how out of control it can get and how dangerous it can get, and now it's changed him and how he thinks and views life. Like Terry had an encounter with fire and he's different because of it. The holiness of God, the holiness of God changes us. The presence of God, this this fire that we we come into uh, uh, an encounter with, and it moves from just something that makes sense in our minds to something that happens deep inside of us, a transformation, a conversion. John Wesley, the great evangelist, uh, has this moment of conversion where he's reading Luther's commentary on Romans, and it's talking about what Jesus does to people's hearts. And as he's reading that, he says that his heart is strangely warmed. Like he can feel it inside of him. Something comes alive. He has an encounter with the living presence of God. And here's a question you have to ask is, has that happened to you before? Have you had a moment where God's presence, the holiness, the holy fire changes you? And it's not just something that makes sense up here in your mind, but it's something that you have encountered, and it's changed something inside of you. Has it ever happened before? When people ask you that, it's an honor. Because what people are talking about is, is your soul, like the essence of who you are. Has God transformed that? Here and now, in your future for eternity? something else about this fire. Not only does it talk about God, his, his holiness, uh, but the, the uniqueness of this fire is that it's burning this bush, but the bush isn't being consumed. The fire isn't, isn't uh, burning up the bush. The bush is on fire, but this is very unusual. Um, this speaks of God as the God of absolute sufficiency. Let me explain this. Fire is dependent uh, on fuel to burn. It has to have something. It's dependent on something to exist. And as long as there's fuel there for the fire, it can exist. Um, this fire in the burning bush isn't consuming the bush. It's not being fueled by the branches or the wood. The fire in the burning bush isn't dependent on anything. This is a fire that has its own infinite source of being in power. And it's not based on anything else within. This presence of God that we understand is absolute sufficiency. Is, he is the author of life. Uh, he is uh, not dependent on anything else. In the theological world, we have this uh, a phrase that it's the aseity of God. Aseity of God. Um, our youth pastor Jacob is in seminary right now at Phoenix Seminary. And sometimes he comes up with terms like this, and we're like, Jacob, that's you know, such a technical term, no one's going to... Like, here I am trying to explain this, and I'm using this big seminary term, the aseity of God, uh, the all-absolute self-sufficiency of God, the self-existence of God is found here. And here's why that is important. When, when Moses says to God, what is your name, who are you, here's how God answers. He says, tell the people that I am who I am and tell the people that I am sent you. What that essentially means is his name is this verb. It means to be. So he's saying being has sent you. The essence of, of, of life, the, the, the author of all life is here, and his presence is not dependent on anything else. God is not created by any other thing. He is the creator of all life. To apply it, think of it this way. Jesus picks up on this when he talks about, uh, in John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And without me, you can do nothing. Without me, without abiding in this presence, there's nothing that you can do because the source of life gives us life. And we're called to abide in that presence, that presence that's not dependent on anything but that creates life for us, Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in this presence, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. This God who has created you, who knows what you are created for, invites you into His presence, the all sufficient source of life. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 reminds us of this, and this goes back to us coming to the end of ourselves with, with how we get our energy, with where we, like, the, the life force comes from God. It says, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. He is our source of life. He is our creator. Uh, Keller, Tim Keller tells a story um, called Palm Monday. I've heard him tell it a number of times. And it's about this little donkey, and I just, I love, for some reason, I love stories about donkeys and poems about donkeys, and uh, especially with Palm Sunday, Chesterton has a great one. Um, But he tells this story, it's the the day after Palm Sunday, and this little donkey wakes up, and he's savoring every memory of Palm Sunday. And he's thinking about how great it was, and the whole parade, and it was just a blast. So he goes into town, and he's got his ears up, and he's super proud, and he goes to the well, the watering well, and he kind of like strolls in, looks around, all these people, like can't can't wait for them to see me. And as he's at the watering well, no one even looks at the donkey. He's like, ah, that's kind of strange. So continues to walk, goes into the marketplace, and he's in the marketplace. People start yelling at him, like, stupid donkey, you can't be in here. This is the marketplace. Get away from the food. Like hostile towards him, kick him out. He keeps walking through the town, and he's like walking around, and he's like, where are all the hosannas? Like, where are the palm branches? What happened? It's only been a day. And he's devastated. And he goes home, and he sees the mama donkey. And the mama donkey's trying to console him, and she says to her child, You silly little donkey, didn't you realize that it was the presence of Christ with you that made everything so glorious yesterday? Without Christ, you can do Nothing. You think, well, that's kind of a harsh reality for the donkey. But this is this, this truth about life with Christ. When we abide in the presence, the source, the absolute sufficiency of God, like we are given, like, our life takes on a different type of, of purpose. Life is full. Life is alive. Life is eternal. Without Christ, we can do nothing. But this author of life invites us into his presence And in what ways do we need this today? What ways do we need to experience this life force of God who invites us into his presence? Then finally, God, he's also the God of presence, the God of nearness, the God who is with us, the God who is here. And this is a mystery as well. When you see this this word see uh, in this story, it tells us in, in Exodus 3, like Moses, is, he's walking and, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and it says that he looked and then it says that Moses turned aside to see and it was a great sight and when the Lord had saw him, he turned aside to see God and it's like, like Moses is seeing God uh, for, the, for the first time. But then in verse 7, it says this about God. The Lord said, I have surely seen you. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them, to rescue them. And it's not just that Moses is seeing God, it's that there's this God whose presence has been with Moses this whole time, and he sees, and he hears, and he knows, and he's this personal God who understands everything that Moses is going through. And he says, I have come down to rescue What does that sound like I have come down to be with you James 4 8 says draw near to God and he will draw near to you and we see that that this presence of God is with us this is Emmanuel God with us when Moses feels inadequate he's like I I can't be the person that goes and, and and saves God says but I will be with you and that changes things this presence of God changes everything but there's another twist to the story that that's interesting like the presence of God, we, we know it's this overpowering presence, like the glory of God. There, we'll get to this in Exodus where Moses is like, he like can't see or touch God because it would just consume him because God is like this consuming fire. And yet in this story, it tells us that Moses is able to experience the presence of God. And then you see this little detail there that we forget, that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame. And then it tells us that the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes as the angel of the Lord. It's a, it's a really interesting discussion of what does this mean. Like, we know about angels, right? Like, we've all seen It's a Wonderful Life, and there's, like, Clarence that shows up. Like, those kind of angels. But then we know about, like, archangels that we see in Scripture. We, we, we know about, like, Gabriel, who's this messenger. But the angel of the Lord, this figure that is found throughout the Old Testament, this is interesting. Because when, when Gabriel speaks, he speaks for the Lord. But when the angel of the Lord speaks, he speaks as the Lord. And you see this thing, the, the, this angel of the Lord that keeps appearing throughout the Old Testament. One of the commentaries I was reading on, Alec uh, Moyer, who wrote the message of Exodus, says this about the angel of the Lord is revealed as the merciful accommodation of God, whereby the Lord can be present among a sinful people. When were he to go with them himself, his presence would consume them. We can put it this way, the angel suffers no reduction or adjustment of his full deity, yet he is that mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. This holiness of God, this presence of God, shows up, can can meet with this failure like Moses, this forgotten person who's a murderer. This angel of the Lord allows this to happen. And you see this angel of the Lord again and again who doesn't just speak for God, who speaks as the Lord throughout the Old Testament. There's a story that's really fascinating between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, uh, Sarah's maidservant and their son Ishmael that takes place in Genesis 21 where the angel of the Lord appears. And as you, if you know this story, like Sarah can't have babies, so she ends up giving her maidservant to Abraham and they have this son. Hagar has a son named Ishmael. And then Hagar is just, like, brutal towards Sarah. And they go back and forth, and they're fighting and just going at it. And finally Sarah said, I've had enough. You're my maidservant. I want you out. She goes to Abraham, and Abraham basically, like, kicks out Hagar and this child, which means that this child is probably, like, a Hagar and and a baby. They're not going to make it without Abraham being there. They're cast out. And as they're cast out, Hagar and Ishmael are running out of food, and they run out of water, and in the story in Genesis 21, Hagar starts crying out. She starts realizing her son, Ishmael, who's been rejected by her dad, is going to die. He has no water. So it says that she goes like an arrow shot away from him because she can't stand listening to him suffer as, she, as, as he's dying. And she cries out to God. And it says the angel of the Lord appears. And the angel of the Lord says that, that God has heard her cry. And, and God then at that moment provides water for Ishmael and starts this new relationship with Hagar and Ishmael. And even though Hagar is cast out and even though like, she, she does all the stuff that, uh, that, that is just terrible towards Sarah, because she has been cast out of this family, God still provides grace and mercy for her to have life. There's this echo of the gospel in that story. Because this gospel story that happens, you know, many years later, this story of a boy named Jesus, born to a poor woman, who lives a life of rejection, who suffers, we know the story. When he goes to his cross, he the cross, he cries out that he thirsts, and it tells us that he that in this moment his father God forsakes him, and Jesus who deserves life ends up getting death so that we can have life. If Ishmael, who is, is bound to have life, ends up getting mercy, like Jesus is this opposite story, where he cries out, and where he deserves life, he receives death. But this angel of the Lord, then what this does is, because of who Jesus is, like we have the ability to be in the presence of God, even though we deserve death, we get life. This angel of the Lord speaks for the Lord. Here's what Alec Moyder would say eventually say, says, there is only one other in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from the Lord, one who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of the deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet supreme, this, uh, this supreme display of his outreaching mercy. The angel of the Lord can be appreciated only when understood as the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, this angel of the Lord. And you think, well, that, is that what that is? Is this who this angel of the Lord is? This, that that Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ mediates between us and the presence of God that would consume us, that allows us as sinners to be in the presence of God. Well, the early church fathers think this. If you read the early church fathers, this is what they identify with. And then you hear these words from Jesus in John chapter 8. It says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. All of this, all of scripture, is pointing towards Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus who allows us to have access, to, who, Jesus who, who gives us life life that is eternal, that says this presence of God that is so powerful and it's like a fire, but yet with Jesus we have the ability to be in this presence of God and that presence now becomes transformative for us, for our identity and for our future. This presence that Moses encounters here in the burning bush that changes him, that same God is present here and now. And he invites us into a relationship with him that is transformative. That is transformative. And in Christ, we are given life, life that is full, life that is eternal, and you have the opportunity for that, this mysterious, mysterious presence of, of God here. We're closing today with a time of communion, and what communion does is it's another way to communicate this message that God has seen our suffering, he has heard our cry, and he has come down to rescue the story of communion uh, is the story of this gospel, that God takes on flesh and blood. He becomes a human. That body gets broken open on the cross. His blood gets shed and poured out. When we take communion, that we, we do this in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And we also proclaim this story, that the presence of God, that we have access to that 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 presence changes us. And if that presence could change someone like Moses, think of what it could do for you. Today, as we close our time, we want to invite you to this communion table. We have elements in different places throughout the room. You can take it on your own today. But the bread, the cracker, represents the body of Christ that was broken. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And we come together to take that. We remember it. We proclaim it. That our future is different now because of this presence of God. And maybe today you need to come with just uh, when you think of the, the God's timing and with where you're at in life and what, what you're wrestling with. And it's a time of just trust and surrender. It's a, a time where you might be at the end of yourself, but you trust that to God's timing. Maybe today it's you're coming into the presence of God and, and your, the, the holiness of God that isn't just something that makes sense in your head. It's something that you encounter that is real. Maybe it's something uh, for you that is, is a time of surrender. But we invite you to the table today to this presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us, how you speak to us, how you reveal who you are to us. And uh, we see the story of the burning bush And we're reminded of who you are. That you are a God who rescues. You're a God who sees. You're a God who hears. You're a God who has made a way for us. Today, Lord, I ask that your presence would just overwhelm this place. That we would experience you. We would encounter you. Lord, we're so grateful for your love. And it's in your name we pray.